of all the commodities known to mankind, of all the rare and special items we cherish, of all the treasures we value and hoard. There is none so beloved, so precious, and so rare as peace. It is the one treasure that we cannot actually own. We cannot buy it, we cannot bury it or save it, or melt it down to its component parts. Peace is a transitory, fleeting moment of time, a state whose actual value grows in its absence. Peace is safety and repose. Peace is a goal and a reward, a vindication and a benediction. Peace is a blessed state, exalted and cherished so much that men and women will individually sanction almost anything to maintain it. To keep the peace, we will obey laws we do not agree with. We will appease leaders who we detest. We will tolerate insults and injustices. We will knowingly acquiesce to a world we despise. All of which to keep alive that small, flickering flame upon the sacred altar of peace. And it is this idolatrous adulation of peace that drives some to comment that to venerate peace like this, it makes cowards of us all. Those who say such things do have a point, yet those who say that also forget a truth that haunts all humanity in our darkest hours. And that truth is that the absence of peace only means war if you are very, very fortunate. The absence of peace can mean something else, something altogether much more horrific, something so primal, so terrifying, that we do not even have a word for it in any language. The absence of peace can mean you enter a world where words like chaos do not even begin to adequately describe what is happening around you, where the norms and rules of society, the hidden glue that binds a civilization together in ways both unseen and unappreciated, become strained and made brittle and can break where what was once considered impossible becomes certain, and what was once considered eternal is obliterated. This chapter signifies a change in the story of London that reflects a change in the story of the island it was sat upon. From now and for the next 200 years or more, London was to know this state. It was to know carnage, rapine, chaos. It was to know violence and death as its residents threw themselves at any solution that could offer them solace. While the period up to the ninth century could never be described as stable or even faintly peaceful, with its endless cascade of wars, of never-ending procession of kingdoms coming in and out of favour and power, we see now London was dragged into an era far more horrific than anything that had happened before. The story of London now reaches chapter 9, 
wherein we describe the opening salvos of the carnage that is to come. Welcome to the violations of London. In the last part, I described how the residents of London had probably known and interacted with Scandinavian traders and merchants since the 780s, how for over 40 years the Vikings in London's story were men more known for their amazing fashions, not their amazing ability to create war, how people are not quaked in fear of them, but rather try to emulate their haircuts and their style of clothing. Yes, out in the wider world, these Scandinavians were guilty of acts of piracy, sure, but to the residents of London, such actions were a nuisance at worst. Now, in presenting the image of the residents of London knowing and not feeling especially threatened by the Vikings previous to 830, allow me to repeat something I've said a few times. I'm telling a story. And as with everything in this story, nothing is ever as simple as I sometimes explain it, ever. So, behind the explanation I gave last chapter, there are always more details, including the idea that London always knew that these guys were capable of being merchants and pirates, and seemed fine with it both. And we have a story I feel illustrates how Londoners were under no illusions as to who these Scandinavians were. So, while this chapter story begins properly from the year 835, this little anecdote takes place 27 years earlier. So the king of Northumbria at the time was a man called Eardwulf, and he was driven from his kingdom for reasons we don't really need to care about, and he went into exile. He fled to Europe, and he visited the Emperor Charlemagne for a while, and then, afterwards, he travelled to Rome and stayed with the Pope. Now, after all of this, Eardwulf returned to England, and was escorted home by envoys of both the Pope Leo III and the Emperor Charlemagne. They dropped him off, and in the year 809, the envoys all returned back to Europe. Well, almost all of them. As the Royal Frankish Annals reported, one of the envoys, an English-born deacon called Aldwulf, was captured by pirates operating in the region. And by pirates, we mean Scandinavians. But all of this is just build up to the really important part of the story. And that's the fact that this Aldwulf was ransomed by someone working for the King of Mercia. Pope Leo III actually wrote to Charlemagne referring to, quote, the capture and redemption of the deacon Aldwulf, our legate, unquote. But think about this. Here we have actual evidence of this piratical activity taking place, even during the era where raiding big towns was not happening. But most importantly, here we have clear proof of communications between the Scandinavian kidnappers and somebody working for the King of Mercia. Remember, my whole point was that the Scandinavians had been coming to trade in Londonwick since about the 780s. By 809, the town would have had at least 20 years to build up rapport with any Scandinavians who they traded with. 
short of suggesting there was some kind of high-level diplomatic link between some pirates and some unknown Irdeman of Mercia, I think a plausible explanation for this whole incident was simply someone in Londonwick knew a guy who knew a guy. Look, a papal legate had been kidnapped. The king was willing to pay for his release. Maybe someone in Londonwick called Godwin, who was selling some sheep to a guy called Olaf before his return journey back to Denmark, just asked him if he knew someone who could make contact with the kidnappers, as his elderman had said something. Backdoor communications are often vague and unassuming, but they work. Again, I'm not saying this is what happened. I am saying this is a tantalising possibility offered up by the evidence. The residents of Londonwick saw the Vikings as merchants, but they knew they could be a little bit of a bad boy. In the last chapter, however, I described how the evidence seems to suggest that Scandinavian pirate tactics had begun to change, that after a brief initial flurry of opening raids, the mainstay of Viking activities were confined to the coast of Scotland, Ireland and the Irish Sea. This is not to say that the region around the English Channel and the north coast of Francia were completely peaceful. They weren't, as we can see from the story of the kidnapping of the monk Aldwulf. But it was not what we would always call Viking raids. I went on to describe how the southern North Sea and Frankish and English coasts were kind of off-limits to these people to a degree. This was partly due to their defensive measures, but it was also due to mercantile interests back in Scandinavia getting mad at anybody who would dare raid their customers. And for me, this is proven by the nature of the treasure hoards found on the Scandinavian coasts that suggests that those who did raid the rich kingdoms around the Channel didn't return home for fear of retribution. And all of this is why these Vikings began to overwinter in places in Ireland and the Isle of Man and the west coast of Scotland especially. Here they created a new region for themselves, a liminal place beyond the norms of their home society. It's always easy to see the later Vikings and their actions and to think that everything they did was conceived of and dreamt up in their Scandinavian homelands. But that ignores the fact that from even these earliest days, the Scandinavian pirates had created a diaspora, places outside the rules of their own realms, places where all these rules could be vacated and new ones could be created. They were places of transformation. A labourer could become something else in these places, a famed warrior, an exile could become a lord, fortunes could be made. Yeah, it could be made via trade, sure, but also via mercenary work or kidnapping or outright robbery. That upon the waves of the Irish Sea, in the overcast and dark places that clung to this region, the Scandinavians began to realise they could build ad hoc fleets. No leaders were needed, a hierarchy where captains and their crew, small operators, could meet like-minded souls and organise larger operations would be in effect. 
and their decisions will be based on intelligence brought to them by merchants. And remember, not all merchants would be based back in their homelands. So across Europe at the time, a merchant could be some big, rich, dark-age version of a millionaire, say, back at the home port and sending out ships on his behalf. But mostly, to be a merchant meant travelling to the places you wanted to trade with, and often living there. I mean, think about it. If you're a Mercian living in Dorsted, or a Dane living in Londonwick, you would be a facilitator, a negotiator. You would find ways that you would make money. I mean, when people from your homeland turned up to sell their wares, you'd be there to translate for them, to act as a middleman. You'd make your cut. Or if local merchants seeking to maybe sell their goods in your homeland wanted to do that, they would maybe seek you out to facilitate such a deal. Again, you could make your cut. You would know people. You would get to know the region you had moved to and get to know it well. Perhaps it was this kind of middleman who facilitated the hostage release of that papal legate, a foreign-born resident, a guy who just knows a guy. And we know London, even before the 830s, always had a foreign contingent living in it. The Venerable Bede writes about a resident who is a Frisian slave trader. We know Northumbrian subjects lived within the town. We find households filled with Rhineland pottery. And we know that Frankish landowners resided within Lundenwick's narrow alley-filled streets. Is it too much to assume that there was a couple of Danes living there also? Such men, then, would be ideal candidates to inform the groups of pirates congregating in the Irish Sea and elsewhere of a town's weaknesses and strengths, of the goods for sale and the treasures to be found there. So an imaginary Dane living in Londonwick or nearby Canterbury, uh, maybe he made his name facilitating the import of glass goods from the continent and then selling them on to a markup to his fellow Danes over home. But over drinks he could sit and talk in their native tongue to some quiet guy who came in on the last trade boat about opportunities to be had, about a bunch of friends looking to make a profit, asking about defences of a nearby convent. Again, I am not going to say this is what happened. Merely, it remains a possibility, given all we know. But all of these elements finally came together, and these Scandinavians graduated from acts of simple piracy to full-blown raiding. They finally became what we would call Vikings. It begins really in around 834. The Frankish Empire is distracted by a massive civil war. The fleet that had protected it was unmanned. Somewhere, somewhere unknown, in the shadows of the Scandinavian diaspora, captains came together. They came to agreements. More men joined. They, they agreed to a division of spoils. Intelligence was gathered. And then they struck. The port of Dorsted was the principal port of Frisia. It had been a bastion of commerce and profitability for decades. An ad hoc fleet fell upon it in 834. They knew the town, they knew what they would find, they raided it and escaped. A terrifying blow. A emporium had just been raided. The stakes had just been raised. 
It's often believed that the Viking raids were driven by some pagan campaign against the Christians, and this is why they attacked monasteries so often. Certainly that's how the monks saw it. But realise at the time, monasteries and convents were not places where people went to be one with God. They were regional administration centres. They collected rent, carried out bureaucratic and administrative duties. They ran large swathes of land for the crown. A monastery was basically a local noble power without the noble, although often filling the ranks of the monks and nuns were the sons and daughters of nobility. Indeed, in the Anglo-Saxon world we are just leaving behind, you couldn't visit a single monastery without tripping over some third son or second daughter of some king or some eurderman. How significant then was the attack? upon the great Frankish monastery of St. Philibert in 835. It had been attacked once before, a generation earlier in 799, its violation back then signifying the first such Scandinavian attack upon Francia. It was arguable that this raid had led Charlemagne to institute his Grand Fleet and the Watchtower system a year later, to prevent it happening again. The Vikings had used the nearby island of Nuit-Motier as a base to stage the second raid now, and with the raid in 835, it was like a signal flare had been let off. These pirates now had the numbers and the ability and the intelligence to begin operating on a much larger scale. That monastery was not the only big target that year, because over in England, at the mouth of the Thames, at the far end of the river, every single merchant from Londonwick depended upon, in 835, a Viking fleet fell upon the Isle of Sheppey, just off the coast of Kent. Here was located the rich and opulent Benedictine convent, where in the name of Saint Sexburger, the good sisters ran the island on behalf of the kings of Kent. It was like these Vikings knew the convent would be weak, and thus an ideal target, that they were working on inside information. By 839, we have reports of Vikings rampaging across Scotland. By 840, Louis the Pious was dead, and the various fleets saw an opportunity in the chaos to hit the coasts and river towns of the lands now ruled by Charles the Bald. It was open season down there, uh, succession always caused instability, and instability was ideal for Viking attacks. Oh wait! There wasn't always instability. The year before, King Egbert of the West Saxons died, and there wasn't instability. For the first time in the history of the West Saxons, one of their kings had died, and his son took the throne uncontested and secure. The West Saxons seemed to be copying the Franks in this regard to power being invested in a single dynasty, something King Offer of Mercy had tried to do. And with the elevation of King Ethelwolf becoming the king, of Wessex, the country didn't look like the most inviting target for huge raids. By 840, however, King Wigluf, who'd done much to restore mercy and power, even if it was still not a hint of what it once had been, he died, and a King Beothwulf took the throne of Mercia. And the pirates seemed to have got word fairly quickly, maybe from merchants in Londonwick or Canterbury or East Anglia, they got word that Beothwulf was trying to consolidate his rule, that there was trouble with reports of conflict over on the Welsh borders. This was a perfect time to test the responses of Mercia then. 
The intelligence these raiders were getting seemed spot on. Within the year, raiders hit the Mercian territory below the River Humber, the province and ancient kingdom of Lindsay. They sail up the river with them towards Lincoln. Whatever fourth Beothwulf could muster, it failed to catch them. What these raiders were finding was that their success was breeding more followers willing to chance their hands, and the more followers promoted greater daring from the growing larger ad hoc fleets. The Scandinavians entered an utter flurry of activity. Over 840 and 841 then, this campaign of utter carnage seemed everywhere. Frisia, the home of some of Europe's most well-established traders, fell totally under Scandinavian domination, offering them new places to base themselves, new places to gather their ad hoc fleets. We saw Dublin established, and also a place called Anagassen. Today it stands as a very small little village on the coast of Ireland, the kind of place that only gets one bus to it a day. But back in 841, it was arguably more important than Dublin, a new bastion for these Vikings to winter in and to plan their attacks. We know that year the Vikings attacked Romney Marsh in Kent, before discovering that those malarial-infested marshlands were not ideal, and so sailed north to raid Lindsay again. Dorset had been attacked, Southampton had been attacked. As 842 dawned, word arrived that the great Frankish emporium of Quentovic was sacked. This town, which is now lost to us, was the main port on the north coast of Francia. It was vital to the trade link between Kent and Francia. It was famed for the great warehouses of goods that were said to congregate within its walls. Its sacking would have been horrific news. It was only really a question of when London would be targeted. And this idea is reinforced by physical evidence. Sometime after 840, and arguably before 842, someone, some London resident, clearly worried about Viking attack upon their town, so worried they buried their money to keep it safe. His or her preferred location is really quite interesting. They chose somewhere between Londonwick and the broken walls of Londinium, the old Roman ruins. And here they found a deserted stretch of the Thames foreshore to bury their money in. It wasn't too close to the River Fleet, as we can imagine that would have been marshy, but not too far away so that someone may see them bury it. Maybe they did it at night, when everyone was abed. Maybe they did it by dawn's early light. Whatever the case or the story, and we do not know, this unknown person buried their money in a place that today we call Middle Temple, presumably with the intention of coming back and digging it up. It is an interesting mix of coins. They were a collection of all the three main mints in the region, West Saxon and Kentish coins from Canterbury and Rochester, and Mercian coins from London itself. Oh yes, I mentioned a couple of chapters ago how under Wigloff, the mint in London had stopped working, and how Mercia had been unable to produce its own coins, yeah? Well, under King Beothwulf, the Mint of London had restarted. And that meant Londonwick, Rochester and Canterbury, all three in or near Kent, were now places where bullion were kept and where moneyers were busy producing coins and currency. Now, whoever the person who buried those coins were, we know they never returned to retrieve them. 
They disappear from our records, and given the time frame, while we have no idea whatsoever about their fate, we can suggest that they were murdered and have a reasonable chance of getting it right, especially given the date that they buried that coin collection, because in the early part of 842, a Viking raid hit Kent with force and, above all, with some good local intelligence. They knew what they were aiming for. They went after Canterbury, Rochester and Londonwick, which is a heck of a coincidence. Not really. We know scant details about this raid in the 840s, the first attack upon London. In fact, it's often overlooked behind the much better covered later attacks. Did the inhabitants flee? Did they fight back? We don't know. We have this image of Vikings winning every time they attack, but how do we know they did? The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle gives us nothing, aside from the fact that the raid on all three towns was a great slaughter. Did the raid mean the town was destroyed? Well, clearly not. In fact, comparing the first raid with the second one that's coming up in a bit, we see almost no long-term impact from the first raid at all. Did the first one even sack London? Did the residents drive them off? Did they pay them off after a bit of fighting? We don't know. We assume the worst, but we cannot tell. There are plenty of theories, but no clear answers. There's no meat on these bones. London was raided, but like Rochester and Canterbury, this force didn't close down the town. Londonwick was still open for business. The mint was still producing coins afterwards. Yet for the first time since Boudicca and her tribesmen had burnt down Londinium, this settlement had suffered an attack. But unlike the last time, this time around, it survived. Understand that Londonwick we talk about, it wasn't a large place. At its height, and I think we've passed its height by 842. It had a population of only about 7,000 people. That's tiny by the standards of today, even if it was large by the standards of emporiums of the North Sea. The Mercian town covered a small area. It was half the size of the space within the abandoned Roman walls a mile to its east. It was a wide meshway of alleyways leading off a small handful of streets where single-floored wooden buildings were rammed in close to one another. And we also know that even before this raid, it had been in decline. Now that may have been partly due to the recession I described in a previous chapter, but there may be other reasons why Londonwick had started to decline, not least of which being the fires. See, Londonwick had suffered from great fires in 764 and 798, and maybe a pair of fires over the hot summers of 800 and 801. We know that as we get to our date, it was not as densely lived in as before. And we know that because sometime around now, maybe before the raid in 842, but certainly after the raid in 842, someone built a large defensive ditch through what had once been the heart of the community in Covent Garden. 
and they could do so more easily, as we know that part was less densely packed than it once been. This was still a town, though, of specialist tradesmen and women who made their living servicing the needs of the Emporium. London was a place of glass workers, of bone and horn workers, a town where tanners cured leather to give to leather workers to fashion into finer items, a community of carpenters and metal workers and scores of weavers and the occasional butcher or two. This was not the home of warriors or war bands. Any defence they would have mounted would have been homespun and desperate. Now the Vikings who were attacking them were not brilliant warriors. By being basically adequate with a sword, that would make you a significant cut above most of the residents of London and England, a land with no martial tradition whatsoever unless you are one of the families of the exalted warbands. It could be, it is within the realm of possibility then, that this first attack, that the residents of London saw them off, either by putting up a token fight, or by paying them off after a bit of a fight, or by using people who spoke their language to just pay them off without any fighting. Certainly, the attack on London in 842 does not generate the same horror as the attack in the next year on Nantes, whose sacking effectively cut the Franks off from the English Channel. Indeed, Europe was suffering way worse than England was. The instability of the Frankish Empire made it the prime target. Dorstedt was sacked again, Antwerp and Rouen was attacked, Seville was sacked, and a major overwintering base was established on the north coast of Francia. By 845, dragon ships sailed up the Elbe, hundreds of them eventually burning and destroying Hamburg. We know a massive hydrarchy organised fleet of 120 ships cruised the channel, eventually sailing up the Seine towards Paris and making swift work of Rouen again. The Vikings had been pushing back the regions of operational possibility over this decade. They're now taking Frisia, which I said was giving them a string of bases in the lowland. They were establishing overwinter bases on the north coast of Francia and the east coast of Ireland. They could support larger numbers of men who didn't need to travel as far to begin raiding. Their successes in Ghent and northern France were making them bold as were the successes probably in Northern England. I mean, just because the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle doesn't record attacks on Mercia and Northumbria doesn't mean we should assume they were not happening. And then along comes 851 and the second attack upon London. But this one was something altogether on a different scale to the one that happened the previous decade. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle tells us that 350 heathen ships hit the southeast corner of England. 350 ships. That was larger than the force that had besieged Paris only a few years earlier. It's a staggering number. If there really were 350 ships attacking the southeast coast of England and it wasn't entirely Anglo-Saxon hyperbole, do you know how many men that is? Well, actually, the answer depends on the historian you ask. Some insist the dragon ships would have a crew and complement 
of about 32 men, which means that that force numbered 11,200 Vikings. Some historians say the number on the ships is closer to 70 men per ship, which would then say the number of Vikings landing on the coast of Kent was something like 24,500. That's a force beyond comprehension. That's not an army. That's the wrath of God upon this world. And this force went on a rampage. They utterly devastated Kent. They attacked and stormed Canterbury. And then they fell upon Londonwick. We have a few more details about this attack. Not much, but a few scattered references and archaeological clues. We know that as the huge force tore through Kent, that in Mercia the alarm was raised. The Mercian king came to help, which meant that with him came the feared war bands of Mercia. Those fierce warriors would have turned up to defend the town. But against so large a force? What can you do? The records say that King Beothrulf of Mercia engaged the raiders, but that the Vikings, quote, put him to flight, unquote which suggests he decided to fight. Even if we allow for West Saxon hyperbole, even if we say there's no way there could be 350 ships, even if that reduces the number of Vikings to less than 10,000, it's still a staggeringly large force. Was King Beothrul's resistance merely symbolic in the face of such a foe? Or was he defined in that moment? If he knew he was so outnumbered, why even make a stand? There's something more going on here, something we have lost. But the questions that raises will have to wait for another part. Whatever the case, King Beothwulf was driven off and nothing stood between London and the gaping hungry moor of this force of Vikings. 851 was a much more serious raid than the one that happened in the 840s. They came with a purpose. They clearly knew off and targeted the royal mint. And how can we say that? Well, we know that after 851, the number of coins minted in London literally fell off the scale. So they took the bullion. They also burned much of the town. They took that which was not nailed down how does one respond to this? I've seen some suggest that the residents had mostly fled in advance. Maybe they did. Others have said that the residents blockaded themselves behind the old walls of the ancient Roman ruins. It's not much of a defense if they did so. I mean, they'd have to barricade the gaps in the walls and there were plenty of them. And it ran the risk of annoying the raiders for when they inevitably broke through. But whatever was the case, we know anyone there would be subject to the horrors of such an attack. London was violated again, but this time burning and broken. And their troubles that year were not even over yet. You see, we hear that after the Vikings had done this, they marched on for a bit. So after ravaging Kent and London, they carry on. And it was then that the West Saxons suddenly turned up with a sizable army able to match the Vikings in numbers. I mean, was the victory against all of the Vikings? Probably not. 
because we don't hear about any of the treasures being reclaimed or any captured people being liberated. So maybe the West Vikings stopped their rampage and dented in an exploratory vanguard. But the main body of this raid was still intact. And how do we know this? Well, give me a moment here. In the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the entry for the year 851, there's a lot goes on in that year. And the chronology of events that the year follows is based on the sequences as it's written down. So it says that the Vikings set up a base on the Isle of Thanet, off the coast of Kent. Which is strange, as if they're setting up an overwinter base. That means technically they arrived in the year 850, yeah? Anyway, it then says there was a naval battle where the king of Kent, King Aethelstan, and an alderman, quote, fought in their ships and slew a large army at Sandwich in Kent, taking nine ships and dispersing the rest, unquote. It's worth mentioning that this English naval battle was the first ever English naval battle in recorded history. Then the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says this big force of 350 ships worth of Vikings turn up, go on the rampage, drive off the Mercian King, sack London, and then it says the raid was stopped by the glorious army of Wessex, which is fine, and everybody accepts that's the chronology. But it does rather suspiciously make Wessex look really good, doesn't it? And more than that, it doesn't make any sense to me. Because I believe it was after the raid on London that the Vikings established a Nova winter base on the Isle of Sanet. When people write about this, they get distracted by the comment the scribes made about how this was the first time the Vikings had ever made an overwinter base on English soil. But that ignores a very cold and practical reality. Viking raids. It was a process that allowed you to profit at many stages. Yes, when you arrived, you could smash and grab and take all the shiny things, but you could generate profit for weeks afterwards. What from? From people. Think about it. There is no profit in killing someone out of hand. Every person of the right age is a revenue source. They could be sold as slaves or ransom back to their families and loved ones. Children and women would be especially valuable in this respect, as well as being the spoil of conquest for you to use as you awaited financial restitution. I mean, look at the situation. These Vikings had just devastated Kent and London, and they had taken the treasures of Canterbury and London in goods and people. And these had to be divided up, sold, ransomed, and more. You would need time to regroup to see who survived the battle with the Saxons, to see who gets what share, to make sure no one is taking more than they should, and to be somewhere where the locals could turn up and send emissaries to ask if their husbands and wives, their sons or their daughters were still alive and how much would it cost for their release. I mean, look at the first anecdote I've told. 
Back in 807, there was money to be made in ransoming people. It was a cruel business, and yet it was a business. Practicality and profitability can be seen running throughout this entire thing. Overwintering on Thanet after the raid would make sense. And there was not a damn thing the kingdoms of Kent, Wessex or Mercia could do about it. So for me, the order of events that year would make much more sense if they went like this. The huge raiding force falls upon Kent. Boom. It's a massive force that sweeps away and drives away any local Kentish resistance. Alerts are sent out to the West Saxons and the Mercians. Canterbury falls. This horde moves on, plundering as they go. The men are not just killing, they're stealing. And they're making sure their spoils are cared for. They are sent somewhere to be guarded by their own men, people and items. You couldn't march carrying your treasures. There'd be a burden. That, that's a bad organisation. Of course, disposing of your spoils like this meant your numbers were diminishing as you went along. But maybe that's why you brought so damn many. I mean, think about it. Some Vikings were here to raid and fight. Fine. But there would be some here to keep a tally of the spoils they were taking and to move them to a safe place. And some would be here to guard that safe place. Eventually, the main force hits London. The King of Mercia was waiting for them, but no one else. The Mercians are driven off and London is violated. More treasures, more captives, more men sent with the goods and people back. The force gets smaller. The Vikings march on. They tear through Kingston upon Thames. They do the same. More treasures, more captives, more men sent with goods and people back. The force gets smaller. And then they suddenly find an army of West Saxon warbands facing them who attack and defeat them. It would make sense then to grab your wounded and return back to the loot and there to take stock and divide up the wealth gained. So they overwintered on Thanet as they could protect it and the King of Wessex couldn't get to them there. Not that the West Saxons didn't try. As the record says, the King of Kent and his men suddenly deployed ships, intercepting and capturing nine Viking ships from a much smaller force who was maybe looking for other targets or maybe was looking to go home after the raid. That makes much more sense to me as a chronology for 851. But that's just me. We do not know for sure, and most people just accept the chronology as it's laid out in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. I don't know. Maybe I'm too used to totally distrusting it as a trustworthy primary source these days. Whatever. It's not important. What is important? London was burning. Smoke rose from the Anglo-Saxon town. The Emporium was broken and violated. Nothing would ever be the same again. The future was dark and ominous, and how precious now was the memory of that most beloved of treasures, peace. What would those survivors have given as they gazed upon the devastation of their town to return to the days before, 
What would any of us have given in such times? And with that, as the sun dawns upon the year 852, we bring chapter 9 to a close. I'll be making some announcements about social media support and more next episode, but for now, on this rather ominous note, I'll see you next week for chapter 10 in the story of London. <laughs>